Our Father in heaven, we do again thank you for your word that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you speak to us by your holy scriptures. May you so speak to us this day, directing us in the faith we are called to in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we see him more clearly and may we follow him more fully. And may you indeed grant us faith to continue on as saints of the Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some of us are planners and quite good at it. Others of us, not so much. But certainly everyone can appreciate it when a plan is made and, and everything goes without a hitch. Before Deborah and I got married, I remember friends telling stories of various mishaps that they had on their honeymoon, whether it was missing flights or someone getting sick for like the whole week or other such things, causing them to course correct in some form or fashion, but then being able to kind of laugh about it in hindsight and, of course, share their story with me. And these stories then started to cause me to wonder what might possibly go wrong. Well, I'm happy to report that nothing really went wrong at all. Uh, Perhaps the only thing that came close to being a problem was when we stayed in Charleston for a few days and we parked our rental car under a tree and then didn't use it because in Charleston you just walk wherever you want to go. And then on the day it was time for us to leave, I went out to the car and found the the windshield entirely covered in bird poop. I don't recall how I initially solved the problem, but I know we pretty quickly made uh, made our way to an automatic car wash at a gas station and you know, took care of, of the mess. The air coming through the air conditioning vents didn't smell the best for a while, but, but over the course of two weeks, that was really the only hiccup in the plans. When our text this morning in Genesis 37, the plans of Judah and his brothers seem to come together quite nicely, don't they? Instead of murdering their brother, they get to sell him into slavery, making 20 shekels of silver in the process, and then stage his death. They're free and clear. But the plans of Joseph and Jacob completely fall apart, don't they? Being sold into slavery certainly wasn't part of Joseph's plan. And for Jacob, the death of his firstborn son by Rachel, his queen, wasn't how he thought things would go, especially in light of the promises of God and what he'd revealed. Well, this passage is a theologically rich text on a number of levels, and we'll do our best to mine as many gems from it as we can. It's a continuation, a second part to the story we considered last week where Israel sets apart Joseph for a special office symbolized in the tunic Joseph received. Remember in the first place that Joseph is the faithful covenant keeper. Like Jacob, he cares for the things of God. And the evil report he delivered concerning his brothers wasn't the action of uh, an immature tattletale but of a son speaking the truth to his father, the head of their clan and leader of a burgeoning nation. And secondly, the fact that Joseph is dreaming dreams means that God is revealing his word to him and to his brothers and Jacob through Joseph. The brothers despise the words that Joseph speaks when they should submit to them. They hate Joseph for the office he's been given by Israel when they should respect him because for them to hate Joseph is to hate Israel. That's a little bit of the context uh, that we need to keep in mind as we come to the second half of the story that's told in chapter 37. And an overarching theme that I want you to see in verses 12 to 36 is that this is an attack against Joseph. It's an attack against the promised seed. And that's a familiar theme in Genesis and one which we do well to remind ourselves of. 
So where does this part of the story begin? Well, with some geographical details. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Clearly, this is a continuation from the previous section since it refers to his brothers, obviously Joseph's. But notice the mention of Shechem three times in three verses. Why is that important? Well, the Bible doesn't waste details. The Holy Spirit didn't put things in just for the sake of filler. Now, Shechem is significant because it's the first place that God appeared to Abraham after calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham built an altar there. It's a sanctuary. And just as a point of clarification, chapter 37 chronologically precedes the events in chapter 34 when Simeon and Levi wipe out the Shechemites. Otherwise, there's no way they'd have their flocks anywhere near the city. But also notice in verse 14 where Joseph and Jacob are living at the time in the valley of Hebron. What was significant about Hebron? It was the third place where Abraham built an altar, established a holy mountain for worship in the land. So Israel sends Joseph from one sanctuary city to another, in a manner of speaking. Some other details to note. In verse 13, Jacob is called Israel, and it's Israel that sends Joseph. This implies that Joseph is being sent in some kind of official capacity. Uh, Joseph is sent to the brothers for official business. And Joseph responds, Behold me, or I'm ready to go. Actually, verses 12 to 14 are, are generally chiastic. There's the mention of Shechem. Israel sends Joseph. Joseph's readiness. Israel sends Joseph. And then the mention of Shechem again. And this structure, uh, it, it draws attention to Joseph's obedience. He readily obeys his quick act when called upon. His response is reminiscent of his grandmother, Rebecca, when she was asked if she was willing to go with Abraham's servant in order to become Isaac's wife. And Israel sends Joseph to see. He, he goes and acts as Israel's eyes. He is sent to go and evaluate. And he's to go and see if it is well with his brothers. Literally, if it is peace. Is it peace? No, the brothers cannot speak peace to Joseph, as we were told in verse 4. But apparently, Joseph and Israel are both unaware of this. It's hard to imagine that Jacob would knowingly send Joseph into a hostile situation. Joseph heads from Hebron to Shechem, which were about 50 miles apart. So this isn't a simple journey to the countryside in an afternoon. The scene shifts, and we have this very interesting encounter recorded for us in verses 15 to 17, where a man finds Joseph wandering in the fields. And notice what the man asks, what are you seeking? You probably guess that Joseph was looking for flocks. But then Joseph replies that he's seeking his brothers and asks where they might be with the flocks. To which the man replies in return that he'd overheard the brothers talking. They'd taken the flocks onto Dothan, which was about another 20 miles away. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now let's think about something else here. Um, when's the last time an anonymous man was encountered in the book of Genesis? Well, it's back in chapter 32 when Jacob wrestled with the man all night at Peniel and comes to realize that he's wrestled with God. I'm not suggesting that this man is God, because I don't think that he was, nor do I think he was an angel. But just as Jacob came to realize that all of his wrestlings with men, particularly with Esau and Laban, were ultimately wrestlings with God, so we as the reader should see God directing Joseph's path through this man. God's providence, his orchestration of events, has this man find Joseph wandering about in the field, 
and then directing him to Dothan. This man is part of the reason that Joseph will end up in a pit and then eventually in Egypt by the end of the chapter. Joseph is being led by God even if he's completely unaware of it at the time. Something that's often true of our own experience, isn't it? But just as Jacob encountered wrestling match after wrestling match to mature him, likewise Joseph is being sent into the thick of testing for the purpose of maturing him for greater service to the Lord and his people. And chapters 45 and 50 reveal to us, uh, Joseph learns this lesson. Seeing God's guiding hand in all the events of his life that were brought to pass. But that can certainly be hard to see in the moment when sitting in the bottom of a pit, as will be the case. So, so Joseph leaves the sanctuary of Hebron and Shechem. And what happens to him? Well, he's attacked. Which brings us to verses 18 to 35. And, and again, this, this section is highly structured. The brothers see Joseph coming from afar, perhaps because of his special tunic, his garment of authority. And before he arrives, they plot his murder. In verse 19, they literally call him the Lord of Dreams, which was certainly meant sarcastically, but it's also true. Joseph is the Lord, the master of dreams, even as later chapters further reveal. So they plot to kill him, throw his body in a pit, and claim a wild beast killed him. Well, they do end up killing Joseph, at least symbolically. They do throw his body into a pit, as the story goes on to reveal. And there's a sense in which they, the brothers, are the wild beasts that kill Joseph. They're plotting and actions proving as much. Throughout Scripture, wild beasts are associated with men. As one pastor notes, Adam and Eve are associated with beasts when they are clothed with skins after they sinned. The king in Psalm 22 is surrounded and devoured by the bulls of Bashan who open their mouths like ravening and roaring lions. The nations are depicted as beasts in Daniel 7. Paul says that he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 15.32. When you check out what he was talking about in Acts 19, you know that he fought with people. So the fact of the matter is, Joseph is being devoured by a wild beast. He has left the sanctuary land and entered the untamed wilderness and now must fight with these beasts. And when we read about Jesus' temptation in Mark's gospel, which only covers two verses, what do we read? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus did encounter a wild beast in the wilderness, didn't he? Yes, he encountered a dragon out there. And surely we can see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, sent by the Father, robed with authority, to see if there is peace. And we are also rightly reminded of the parable of the tenants that Jesus tells in Matthew 20, 21, who, who plot to kill the master of the vineyard's son when they see him coming. Something else we need to remember is the importance of pits in the Joseph story. The fact that he's put into a pit means that he's undergoing a symbolic death. Man was made from the ground, from the dust of the earth, and to the dust he shall return. So to return to the earth, in the case for Joseph, is for him to die. He's put into a hole in the ground. That's what's symbolized. He's buried. And the pit being referred to is a cistern, which was used to collect or store water. It's probably made out of limestone in the ground. It would have been bottle-shaped, wider at the bottom, 
and then narrowing at the top, which would have made it virtually impossible for Joseph to escape from on his own. And we know it's important in the story because it's mentioned seven times in the account. And then notice the end of verse 20. And we will see what will become of his dreams. Unbeknownst to the brothers, they are instrumental in bringing Joseph's dreams to fulfillment. Though it certainly doesn't appear to be the case. As far as they're concerned, they're they're going to bring his dreams to an end. And notice, their plans and scheming because of Joseph's dreams led to their fulfillment. There's some delicious irony in that, isn't there? Well, in verses 21 to 22, Reuben basically comes to Joseph's rescue and contends that they shouldn't kill him. He suggests they go ahead and throw him into the pit. Why? Because he plans to go back and rescue Joseph later and restore him to Jacob. Now, understand that Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob's sons and, and the firstborn was the protector and that was what Reuben is doing here. We should also understand that at this point, Reuben hasn't slept with his father's concubine. So we should probably read Reuben in a relatively favorable light in these verses. Maybe he had ulterior motives of some kind for seeking to protect Joseph, but it it seems pretty reasonable to view him as playing the part of the protective uh, eldest brother. Verse 23, Joseph arrives. Brothers strip him of his tunic and notice the attention given to the tunic. And what does this symbolize? Well, it's an attack upon Joseph's authority, a complete disregard for his office, as well as an indirect attack on Israel's authority. Furthermore, the language used here of stripping Joseph is interesting. As Gordon Wenham points out, this is the language used in Leviticus 1.6 to speak about the skinning or flaying of the ascension offering. For all intents and purposes, Joseph is being sacrificed. And there's a measure of irony that he's the sacrifice for his brothers, even if they don't understand. Still more, these sacrificial actions lead to the ascension of Joseph when he eventually becomes the Lord and ruler of, of the world. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what happens to Jesus. So the brothers took Joseph and threw him into one of the pits, a pit without water. Apparently there was one more than one cistern. Some interpret the name Dothan to mean double cistern, so maybe there are at least two cisterns there. The fact that there isn't any water in it is a good thing for Joseph, otherwise he might have drowned. But note that the text is clear to say that the cistern is dry. You know, it's not even muddy like the one Jeremiah would be thrown into. This cistern is a dead cistern. Joseph is put into a, a dead pit, all the more impressing upon us the symbolic death that he's experiencing. This also should remind us of the Philistines in Genesis 26 who stopped up wells. That's a symbol of death. You know, you, you need water in the wilderness to survive, and this water source is waterless. And note that at Reuben's suggestion, they throw Joseph into a pit, an empty pit, and then when Reuben returns later to rescue Joseph, the pit is empty again. And yet again, we do well to remind ourselves that the Bible doesn't waste details. And so we need to stop and take the time to consider why we're given so much detail about a hole in the ground, a tunic, and so forth. See, it's to instruct us in the theology of the text. Joseph has been slaughtered and put into his grave. And then what's the next thing that we read in the first part of verse 25? The brothers sit down to eat bread. I'm not sure why the ESV leaves this detail out. The New King James reads meal. 
but they sit down to eat bread. They participate in a communion celebration. They've made an unholy sacrifice, but the job is done, and so they sit at rest and fellowship with one another. But notice the subtle connection that the death of Joseph leads to the brothers partaking of bread. What does that picture and point forward to? Well, later in Genesis, Joseph is in authority and power, and he's the source of bread. But instead of putting his brothers to death, he feeds them. They'll be suffering death in their land due to famine and will come to Joseph for bread and he'll give it to them. There's also a hint of their callousness displayed here. Not that their actions don't already display that. But if we look ahead to chapter 42 and 21, we find out that Joseph cried out to his brothers that he begged them to get him out. So they're eating this meal while Joseph is crying to them from the pit. But, and this is hardly accidental, in chapter 37, Joseph is silent. He's like the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of course, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But certainly we see Jesus and Joseph, don't we? Well, while the brothers are eating, they look up and see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. What are the Ishmaelites carrying? Things that incense is made out of. And these same three items will be what is sent by Jacob to the Egyptian man, Joseph, in chapter 43 and verse 11. Structurally, Joseph parallels these items. Balm had medicinal purposes. Jeremiah talks about the balm of Gilead. So what's, what's the theology that's emerging here? That Joseph is associated with healing. He's going to bring healing to Egypt and eventually the rest of the world. Joseph will have a ministry of healing to the nations. Now we do well to take note of the three different names of peoples mentioned in verses 25 to 36. First, the Ishmaelites are mentioned in verse 25 and then again in verse 28. The Midianites are referenced in verse 28, and the Medianites are mentioned in verse 36, though that's typically translated Midianites again. Who were the Ishmaelites, Midianites, and Medianites? Descendants of Abraham, Ishmael from Hagar, and Midian from Medan, and Medan, Ishmael from Hagar, and Midian and Medan from Keturah, Abraham's second wife. But all of these sons had to be exiled, so to speak, to make way for the promised seed. But now Joseph, the promised seed, is going into exile with them. Joseph goes out among and is preserved by the Gentiles. This foreshadows Israel's experience, even as they'll go down to Egypt at the end of Genesis, but also as portrayed later in Israel's history in the book of Jonah and the coming Babylonian exile. But surely the irony of the text is clear. The chosen seed of Abraham is seeking to destroy their Savior while the non-chosen seed of Abraham will protect him. Still more, Joseph, the true seed, is being associated with the exiled non-seed line of Ishmael. He is the true seed, but he is excommunicated, as it were, by the sons of Israel. He is the one who is shunned, but in him is the true people of God. Now, you might find it a bit confusing with references to Ishmaelites and Midianites and Medianites, and it 
can seem unclear which group Joseph is sold to and so forth. I'm, I'm inclined to think that the group as a whole is called Ishmaelites, uh, perhaps the more dominant nation. And then within that group, there are also Midianites and Medanites, and they're all traveling together to Egypt. There isn't error or contradiction, but they're using, uh, but the names are being used somewhat interchangeably. So Judah comes up with the plan to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. The brothers think it's a good plan, and so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Arguably, this was better than murdering Joseph, but as one scholar observes, selling him into slavery was not something they were supposed to be doing. Later in God's law, it's commanded that brothers cannot be sold into slavery. A person who is in debt may be an indentured servant, but he's not to be sold so as to be owned by another. Joseph's brother are... Brothers are treating him as if he is an outsider, a stranger, one who could be bought and sold as property. The fact that they sold him for 20 pieces of silver means that he was under the age of 20. That was a man's value according to Leviticus 27.5. And remember, many of these laws and statutes were being practiced before they were codified at Sinai. 30 pieces of silver was the price for a slave over the age of 20 which you'll remember was the amount for which Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. Then Joseph is drawn up from the pit, a type of resurrection, and goes to dwell with the Gentiles, first the Ishmaelites and then the Egyptians. And isn't it interesting that it's the Gentile descendants of Abraham, along with Joseph, who go down to Egypt first, anticipating the experience of the nation of Israel later on. Well, that brings us to the last part of our text. And here we observe the brother's deception of Jacob. But before we get there, Reuben's return and response are recorded in verses 29 to 30. Where Reuben had gone, we don't know. Maybe he had first watch over the flocks or something like that. He finds the pit empty, and then what does he do? He tears his clothes. He rends his garments. The second instance of this kind of action in this morning's text. And since clothing represents office... Reuben is going through a death of sorts as well in the tearing of his garments. And there are some echoes here in relation to Genesis 3 and 4. The brothers have unrightfully taken something, seized a garment and authority that didn't belong to them. And having gotten rid of their brother, they're not so unlike Cain when he murdered Abel. So Reuben now declares, where am I to go? He's failed to protect as the firstborn. His office is compromised. The brothers then employed to seat against their father. And notice, again, the detail and attention related to the tunic in verse 31. They slaughter a goat. Jacob and Rebekah slaughtered goats to make the stew for Isaac, but this isn't Jacob getting his comeuppance. Jacob and Rebekah were endeavoring to get Isaac to do the right thing, whereas the brothers have only evil, selfish purposes in mind. Then the robe is dipped in blood. An animal is slain in order to cover up their sin. But symbolically, Joseph is the sacrificial lamb that's slain in order to save the brothers. And once again, we're reminded of Jesus and even of his robe dipped in blood in Revelation 19, 13. In verse 32, they send the robe ahead. And notice, notice how little the brothers speak and how they direct attention away from themselves and speak with Jacob in such a way as to lead on his thinking to draw the conclusions for which they're hoping. Jacob identifies the tunic in verse 33 and then sets to mourning in verses 34 and 35. And then notice what he does. He tears his garments. The third set of garments explicitly mentioned. First Joseph, then Reuben, 
and now Jacob. Each of them experiencing symbolic death. Uh, Israel is riddled with death. Then for the garments of life, Jacob dons the garments of death in the sackcloth, mourns many days, and refuses to be comforted by his sons and daughters, daughters-in-law included. Jacob basically says that a day won't go by between now and the day he dies that he won't mourn Joseph's death. And while the grief of a father losing a son shouldn't be downplayed or ignored here, there's something more going on in the text, something deeper. As one pastor puts it, what we have here in Jacob's mind is the death of the seed and the hope of God's promises going to the grave with him. Abraham saw Isaac get up off the altar. Jacob believes Joseph is dead. What has become of God's promises and the redemption of the world? What has happened to the dreams, God's word given to Joseph? How can God possibly accomplish his purposes through a dead seed? Thus, Jacob is left in a state of mourning. The son is dead. Well, of course, we have the reader's edge. We have verse 36, which provides a glimmer of hope. Joseph is still alive and has been sold by the Mennonites to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, or maybe even the chief executioner. And although Joseph has been sold into slavery, he's become part of a semi-royal house since Potiphar was a high-ranking officer. So we're left in the suspense for the time being, and the writer doesn't get back to Joseph until chapter 39. But what further instruction is there for our faith and life? Well, perhaps it can go without saying, but the trials through which, which we have come and the ones we have yet to meet are all divinely orchestrated. Later, Joseph will recognize this, but the fact is he did recognize this. And we must endeavor to recognize this even when going through various trials of our faith. Of course, we're not going to understand all that's going on. When you're in the pit, you're in the pit. And that's not at all pleasant. In fact, it can be pretty miserable. And you have no way of knowing when you might get out. But faith trusts the God who has orchestrated the events to take place. He calls us to trust Him through these things and to believe that whatever death occurs in the meantime, there's a resurrection on the other side somewhere. Sometimes it's easy to say these things and to nod our head in agreement when we're not in the pit. And maybe we look at the life of Joseph and marvel at the way God led him all the way through these difficulties and used everything along the way for a purpose. But the story of Joseph is our story, told with variations on a theme, no doubt. But it's our story nonetheless. Don't relegate this as some ancient or ethereal story with unreal people that has no relevance for your life, with only a general moral here and there. No, the God who, who brought Joseph into and through these trials has directed that some of us go through physical pain as a test of our faith. God has brought you to that place for a purpose. God has brought us into difficult relationships and even severed relationships. We experience loss and pain in those relationships. God has brought you to that place for a purpose. God has brought you into your mental wrestlings as well, those fights with doubt and fear, those bouts with apathy, those matches with discouragement. What do you do when the great feelings are gone and you have to live day by day without the highs? God has brought you to that place 
for a purpose. The struggles with your finances or job-related challenges. Or maybe there's a circumstance in your life that you simply wish was different or would change. Which I know is true for some of you right now. All of these have a purpose. God's purpose in all of our trials is training. He's, he's teaching us persevering faith. He's teaching and training us to be good, a good image-bearing king or queen. It's a f- familiar theme through Colossians and in our study of Jacob. But maturity comes through testing and responding to that testing in faith. If you are to grow, you must go through trials. If you are to be a good steward, good king or queen in God's world, you must go through testing. It's painful. And pain is pain. It hurts. But be encouraged that although you cannot and will not figure out all the details, you you won't know all of the whys for what is happening. You can know that God's good purpose is being worked out in your life. As Paul wrote to the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Our faith can know and trust the God and Father who orchestrates these things because he did so for his beloved son. He can accomplish his purposes through a dead seed because when the seed dies, when it is planted in the ground, it will then bear much fruit. Joseph dies. He's planted in the ground and his death will bear much fruit. Jesus died and was planted in the ground and his death bears much fruit even to this day. In many respects, this is a fitting text for the celebration of all saints, isn't it? Surely those who have gone before us in the faith testify to the same. Even though trials and pits and crosses can appear to be the end of dreams or plans, Faith trusts in the God of resurrection whose plan always comes together in the end for the sake of his glory and for the love of his people. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, who in your Son, Jesus Christ, has given us a true faith and a sure hope, help us, we pray, to live as those who believe and trust in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection to life everlasting. And strengthen this faith and hope in us all the days of our life. Through the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.